You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we'll be finding out how cold homes can increase the burden of illness and even death during winter months. So that's staggering. That was a big surprise, how big the problem is, how extensive it is, given how long we've known about it. And in the UK, a parliamentary select committee is looking into peer review. Is it really in crisis? Peer review is not up to the job it's being asked to do. And I think that's no fault of all the people working hard across the biomedical community and the research community generally. First, cold homes. A recent Marmot review has looked into cold homes and how they affect the health of the population. Earlier this week, I went to University College London to speak to Professor Sir Michael Marmot about his group's findings. Having read this report, some of the, the things that have come out of it are quite stunning. Was there anything that particularly surprised you when you were compiling this? A couple of things surprised me. Firstly, was how extensive fuel poverty is and how persistent the effect of excess winter deaths is. We've known about excess winter mortality in Britain for a very long time and still a huge problem. The most recent period, the estimate was 25,000 excess winter deaths for the winter of 2009-10. So that's staggering. That was a big surprise, how big the problem is, how extensive it is, given how long we've known about it. The second was I hadn't really thought about mental health and social development of children in relation to fuel poverty. Once one thinks about it, it's obvious. How come I hadn't thought about that? But when it came out of the evidence that we reviewed, it was shocking. And it makes sense that if you're having difficulty balancing budgets, having to decide whether to buy food or to heat your home, then that's going to pile on top of all the other problems you might have been having. Before we go into to some of the data that you've got there, there's a few definitions that are probably worth uh, making. Um, so we've got excess winter death, this definition of a cold home, and uh, finally what you mean by fuel poverty. Well, excess winter deaths, if you look at the two quarters that span the winter and compare those with the two non-winter quarters, what in Britain, sportingly, we call summer, then it compares the mortality. And if there's an excess, that's the excess winter deaths. And is that adjusted to take account of things like flu season or is it just the, the, the raw numbers? Oh, one of the, one of the important contributors to excess winter deaths in, re, in seasons where there's a bad flu epidemic, we get a bigger excess of winter deaths. So it's not adjusted for the flu. That's one of the contributors to it. Okay. Cold home. The World Health Organization criteria are that adequate heating means that the living area of a home should be 21 degrees and the bedroom should be at 18 degrees for at least nine hours a day. And the third one on the list, fuel poverty? Fuel poverty is defined as having to, having to spend 10% of your income on home heating. And do you know what proportion of people in the country are in fuel poverty? It's ab- about 20%. And very high. And surprisingly, it's been increasing. The figure is around 4 million households 
in fuel poverty. In the report, it says that the peak excess winter death is roughly about 40%. Is there good data then that allowed you to to link cold homes and, and excess winter deaths? The data are not bad, uh, given how poor data often are when you're trying to put together an understanding of a story like this. The data are not bad, and they come from various sources. There have been a lot of studies of temperature and mortality, particularly cardiovascular and respiratory mortality, and that's fairly strong data. Then there are other data on quality of housing. And we know, for example, that the quality of insulation of housing is rather poor in this country by European standards. And then there are studies on household expenditure that tell us how poor people are and what they spend their money on. Putting it together, the data are not bad to construct this story about this intersection between poor quality housing and poverty and then the effect on health outcomes. We've talked about mortality, but there's also an excess morbidity uh, in winter. Were you able to, to look at that and, and, and get some numbers associated with that? Well, there's a clear link with morbidity from cardiovascular disease, a clear link with morbidity from respiratory disease, so it's not just mortality, but also, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, a link with mental health. And all of them are quite substantial. Are you able to quantify the sort of burden of disease for the NHS, if we're thinking of a cost impact for the country? We did have an estimate that uh, for every cold-related deaths, there are eight non-fatal hospital admissions. And it suggested that in the coldest months of the year, NHS expenditure rises by about 2%. Size the NHS budget, that's, uh, that's an awful lot of the money. The NHS budget is 100 billion, 2 billion. It's a lot. It is, absolutely. It's almost a no-brainer from policy terms. If you spend money to prevent fuel poverty, to, to help the coldest homes, then that's going to be a direct saving to the NHS. I think one of the problems is that people are in different parts of government and different people do different sums. So the money's got to be spent from one part of the budget and it'll be saved, theoretically, in quotes, in some other part of the budget. But absolutely, the fact that we've still got a huge excess winter mortality problem and that it's bigger in this country than it is in colder countries suggests that it is avoidable and we should have avoided it. And one obvious way to avoid it is to improve insulation of homes so that it doesn't cost so much to keep them at an acceptably warm temperature. And you have a table in your report that's quite striking about that, comparing, for example, the UK and Sweden. A key part of insulating homes, so the data seem to show, is insulating the floor as well as the walls. And both floor insulation and cavity wall insulation is strikingly low in Britain compared to, for example, Sweden. I think it was 4% of UK homes? 4% of UK homes have the floor insulated and close to 100% of Swedish homes. 
how should we get around this problem? Is it a case of increasing standards so that we're equal to uh, Nordic countries, perhaps? The first thing is to make sure that we've got good standard. And historically, the standard for new housing in this country was not high compared with European standards. That's changing. But then there have been various government schemes that give subsidies or incentives for insulation of the existing stock. And we know, for example, that people in the private rental sector are more likely to be in fuel poverty. We need to look at that. How come we haven't got the incentives right for private landlords or for people in the private rental sector? So I think getting the incentives right and the subsidies right is going to be a key part of the policy. Now, that will cost money, but the money spent here will be saved somewhere else. And it's not just money we're talking about. We'll get improved health for the population and, we hope, a reduction in inequalities in health, which is why my team, in the first place, looked at this issue, because it's part of the more general issue of taking practical steps to reduce inequalities in health. And there's an editorial accompanying that review with an DNI available on bmj.com. Now, David Payne, bmj.com editor, finds out if peer review really is in crisis. So MPs on the uh, Parliamentary Science and Technology Select Committee are looking at peer review. Um, we briefly touched on this uh, inquiry in last week's podcast when we mentioned that uh, Fiona Godley, the editor of the BMJ, was giving evidence this week. I have Fiona with me. Uh, hello, Fiona. Hello. Tell us what you were asked about. Well, I think the panel really wanted to understand why peer review was important and what would happen if we didn't use peer review. That was mm. one of the initial questions. And I was on the panel with uh, Phil Campbell from Nature and Andrew Sugden from Science and Robert Campbell from Wiley Blackwell and a publisher from Elsevier. Um, and uh, there was a general consensus, uh, which I was slightly counter to in some ways, that peer review um, was absolutely crucial and essential to the trust that people place in science, with which I agree at one level. Uh, but I wanted to also, I did also make the point that um, it shouldn't mean we should be scared to experiment with other models. And obviously with the move to internet publication, uh, it's possible that one could have a system whereby... Um, articles are published and the selection and commentary happens after publication. There was a suggestion last week, Fiona, that the MPs certainly felt that the peer, peer review system may be in crisis. I don't know if they returned to that theme at all today. They did. And the issue mainly being focused on was whether there was just too much workload on peer reviewers that actually people were finding it very hard to find people to do peer review. Um, and the solution, it seemed, we were all coming back to was trying to make peer review a professionally recognised and acknowledged and rewarded activity rather than something that's a kind of add-on. Uh, but what about the problems of scientific fraud? For example, the MMR autism papers that we've talked about ad nauseam in the BMJ. I think peer review is not up to the job it's being asked to do. And I think that's no fault of all the people working hard across the biomedical community and the research community generally. It's just the fact that we, as journal editors, are confronted with an article, which is in usually a piece of flat text, which is supposed to be a representation of often a very complex research project. And we don't have the data at our, at our fingertips, nor even if we did have the data, would we necessarily have the expertise or time to look at it. Mm. Uh, we know that studies don't get published at all. We know that data within studies gets suppressed. We know that data is poorly reported. We know that um, there is misreporting and manipulation. And all of those things mean that the trust system is put under enormous 
pressure and often is breached. One of my fears is peer review causing damage by giving a false sense of reassurance to people and that actually the constraint is that we don't have all the information and nor would we know what to do if we did. Yes. Was there scope at the committee to explain some of the things that we're doing as a publishing company around peer review? Yes, we did discuss the fact that pre-publication peer review is just one part of the whole peer review process and having a very active post-publication peer review with our rapid responses is something I think the BMJ is rightly proud of. Um, And the move towards not only open peer review at the BMJ, but also the publication of the pre-publication history, so mm. the reviewers' comments and the pre- the initial submissions from the authors and the correspondence. So those are models which, um, yes, we did talk about, and, and they're not by any means widely adopted at the moment, but no. they do represent uh, possible models for yes. the future. But they have very vociferous supporters, don't they? I'm looking at BMJ blogs recently and saw some of the things written by your predecessor, Richard Smith, who seems to very much embrace this idea of, um, you know, sort of social networks, Twitter, and, uh, you know, using those tools to, to sort of get things discussed about when they've been published. Yes, I think that Richard Smith's view is that we should dispense with pre-publication peer review entirely mm. and move to a situation um, where the thing is published and then commented on afterwards. There's a general sense of concern about that which which I I don't know quite where I stand I think I I'm excited by the prospect but I recognize that there would be some degree of a, a substantial degree of quality control before something hits the public domain we talked about the benefit of conservatism with a small c mm. when assessing science and uh, both Phil Campbell of, at Nature and, and myself talked I think in the end about that conservatism is an important part of what peer review does contribute, that actually we want to make sure something is valid and relevant and reliable, and that's what the current peer review process at its best does ensure. Yes, OK. Well, I mean, was there, some, was there much common ground between you and the other journal editors that were on the panel today? Did you, did you feel that you were all singing from the same hymn sheet? I felt a bit like Cassandra, you know, <laughs> constantly saying, I mean, maybe this is unfair, because they, were, they, they, did, they did make some critical comment, but I feel, felt I was more critical. We had a discussion about whether hot papers affected editorial decision-making and whether Mm. editors might tend to be less critical of papers that might be controversial and uh, worthy of media coverage. Mm. Phil Campbell rightly made the point that there would be no direct connection between publishing a hot paper and commercial gain uh, and that actually uh, no journal editor of any sense would see it as a good long-term strategy to publish hot papers which were poorly done and invalid because mm. the journal's reputation would soon suffer. Um, but I made perhaps, I felt, a related point, which was that I think reprint revenue, which is where articles are published, certainly in clinical journals, and then sold on to the pharmaceutical industry, mm. is an example of a revenue stream that does, I think, impact on editorial decision-making. Thanks, Fiona. If you want to have your say about whether peer review is in crisis or not, um, go to the poll we're currently running on bmj.com, which shows uh, at the moment that uh, 60% feel that peer review is in crisis. Another member of the team here was involved in providing info for the select committee. That's Trish Groves, deputy editor who looks after the research section at the BMJ. Hello, Trish. Hello. And as Fee mentioned earlier, you had the unenviable job of putting together our written submission to the committee. And uh, as Fee says, you know, she felt that the members were very clued up thanks to your contribution and others. So tell us what you talked about in your um, your written evidence to the committee. So what I looked at was um, all the different things that have been tried in terms of uh, improving peer review at journals, um, medical journals. Yes. So mm. if anyone's interested, um, this is a pretty up-to-date roundup of what we know on the, all the different things you can try with peer review. So that's 
that's things like um, not telling the reviewers who the authors are mm. or not telling the authors who the reviewers are or telling everybody who everybody is, which is what we do at the BMJ. Yes. Or lastly, um, making the whole thing public. And yes. You can do that in a couple of ways. You can either um, do the whole thing sort of live on the web or you can uh, post the signed reviews next to the article when it's published. So yes. I, I went through all that kind of thing. Right, OK. And do you have, any, of the things you've outlined, do you have any preferences for how what direction we should be going in as a publishing company? Well, certainly within the BMJ itself, uh, for many years now, we've used the system where everybody knows who everybody is. Mm. So um, the authors know the reviewers' names and they also know uh, who's made the decision at the committee when, when their research is accepted. Yes. So that's good. But that's not visible to anybody else except the other reviewers. Um, we're piloting now um, where we actually will post the reviews and the committee comments mm. and things like previous versions of the article article and any protocol next to the article when it's published. And that's already happening in BMJ Open, our yes. new sister journal. Right. OK. Um, thank you for joining us today, Trish. That's all for this week. Before we go, I've just time to tell you to look out on the BMJ's website this weekend. In a joint investigation with Channel 4's dispatches, we'll be looking at devices, their testing and regulation. Our stories will be available on Sunday and the accompanying dispatches programme airs on Monday night at 8. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.